scriptures reading this morning will be taken from the book of Ephesians. And we're going to read chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Please read with me. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the world. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. May God add a blessing to the readers and the doers of his word. Good morning. I'm really glad to see all of you this morning. I'll be really honest. There are a lot more folks here this morning than I thought there might be this morning. Really, really thankful for your presence. Thankful for those that are joining us online as well. We're really glad that you are with us. The lesson this morning, I forgot to tell Ryan in the AV room that I was going to preach old school. That's what he calls it when I stand behind the pulpit. Um, the lesson this morning was meant as a compliment to Brother Chad Landman's series that he was going to be bringing to us this weekend. He was going to be talking about digital uh, parenting, about taking care of, of things with our kids uh, in their online environment. And this lesson is meant to be a compliment to that. And so when that was canceled, I thought for a little while, should I change? Should I do something different? But this is still a lesson that we need to hear, and it's still one that we need to take seriously from God's Word. And so we're going to go ahead with what was planned along those lines. Open your Bibles, if you haven't already done so, to Ephesians chapter 5. And I want us to look this morning especially at verses 3 through 10. Pilots, when they're learning to fly, have to learn to trust their instruments. They have to learn that they cannot take their cues from what they see all the time. And especially if they're flying through fog or if they're flying in the darkness, pilots have to learn that their instruments are what guide them. Because if you trust your eyes, if you trust what you see, you're likely to get yourself into trouble. The same thing is true for Christians. We need to learn to trust God's word. We cannot take our cues from the world around us. And especially, especially when it comes to matters of sexuality and sexual identity and sexual expression, there are, there are things that are happening in our culture around us and it's everywhere and it's in every conceivable way that, that these kinds of things are coming our way and we cannot afford as the people of God to take our cues from what is happening around us. And along with that idea that we just can't take our cues from the, what the world is doing, we also need to realize that there are some lies that just about everybody has adopted and believes. Think about it. When it comes to sexuality, when it comes to sexual expression, when it comes to sexual identity, our world says things like this. You are abnormal. You are different if you take a, what they would say, repressed or prudish view of sexual expression, if you're not sexually active, you are abnormal. That's not normal for people, they would argue. The world lies to us and has adopted these lies. There's no consequences, especially if sexual relationships happen in a context where there is love that, that exists, where two people love each other. doesn't matter who the two people are. 
there are no consequences to that. That's not true. There is a lie that says that sexual expression is the end-all, be-all. It is the high point. It's the most important part of your human existence. Our culture especially has adopted that lie. That that is the best, that is the number one thing that every human being ought to aspire to be a part of. And it doesn't get any better than that. It's a lie. There are more lies that are being adopted every day. When it comes to alternative lifestyles. When it comes to the agenda of people in our society who are very vocal and advocating things like LGBTQ rights. And at this point, it's come to the place in our history where not only are those things being promoted as normal and right, what Isaiah prophesied has actually happened in our society. In Isaiah 5, verse 20, Isaiah said, Woe to those who call light good, or light darkness and darkness light. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. That's happened. And so if you believe that, for example, homosexuality is a sin... If, if that's what the Bible teaches, if that's what you believe, not only are you immoral, you are on, in our society's way of thinking, the wrong side of history. And don't believe for a second that our children are not picking up on this as it's being pushed on them everywhere in their society. God's people need not to take their cues from what we see. And we certainly can't take our cues from what we ha see happening around us in culture. We're going to have to take our cues from the Word of God. That's why the sermon is entitled, Navigating in the Dark. Look at your Bible, if you would, back up for just a moment to Ephesians 4, and look at what Paul says to his brethren in Christ. In Ephesians 4, verse 17, Paul writes, Ephesians 4.17, I say this, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you, my brethren, should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. And notice, he says, don't take your cue from them in the futility of their mind. They have their understanding, Ephesians 4.18, darkened. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. They are past feeling, it says in verse 19. It says they have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness, but you, verse 20, have not so learned Christ. Christians take their cues from a different place, from a, a different source. We take our cues from the Word of God. When it comes to this matter, when it comes to any matter, our obligation as people who want to serve and please God is to listen to Him and to allow Him to navigate us and guide us through the darkness that's all around us. How do you navigate troubled waters like this? It's not easy to do. It's not as if, for example, sexual temptation just happens once. And if you successfully resist, if you successfully please God in that particular instance, that's fine. It goes away and it never happens again. I'm reminded of Joseph in Genesis chapter 39 and verse 10 when Potiphar's wife was after him. You remember? The Bible says in Genesis 39 verse 10 that Potiphar's wife petitioned him day by day. It wasn't as if he just had to say no once. Joseph had to say no over and over and over again. He had to take his cues from that which he couldn't see from a divine source. And we can't just drift. We can't just drift as God's people 
and think that somehow holiness and pleasing God in this area of our lives is just going to naturally happen. Good things are just going to happen. If we don't say anything, if we don't talk about these matters, good things are going to be the result. That's not true either. We must, as the people of God, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord, the Bible says. Hebrews 12 and verse 14. If you don't follow God's wisdom regarding this particular subject, sexuality, sexual expression, if you don't follow God's will, you will never find the right path, not on your own. And with that all in mind, I want us to turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 10 this morning. Because what God does is he gives us some long-term solutions to navigating the dark around us. He gives us some answers that are relevant to every age, not just this culture, but every culture for how God wants us to view sexuality and how he wants us to live. God wants us to know that there are some guidelines that he expects for us to follow and therefore are good, by the way. Before we look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, I want you to hear me on this. God's way is the right way. It has always been the right way because he is the creator. He's the one that designed us. He's the one that designed our bodies. His way is the right way. His way is the right way also because when we listen to what he's saying in this passage, it protects you. Sexuality is advertised in our culture as something that has no consequences and nobody's ever hurt by it. That is a lie straight from hell itself. It is not true that when we misbehave and we misappropriate our bodies that somehow there's no consequences and nothing bad ever happens. That is not true. And not only that, God's way protects you, but God's way protects the people around you. It protects the people around you. It protects families. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes, flee sexual immorality. And I want you to hear me on this. Every husband wants his wife to do what Paul said to do in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Every husband wants his wife to flee sexual immorality. Every wife wants her husband to flee sexual immorality. Parents want that for their kids. That was kind of the point of what Brother Landman was going to come and do this weekend. We're going to reschedule that. Parents want that for their kids. We want them to flee sexual immorality. By the way, kids want that for their parents. We want, as kids, stable marriages. We want mom and dad who love each other and are committed to each other. We want these things for other people. The problem is, a lot of the time when it comes to sexual immorality... It's a matter of what do I want, not what does God want, and not what's going to bless other people. God gives us four guidelines as we think about all of these matters, and here they are. Number one, God shows us in his word how to think about it. Take your cues from God. Look at Ephesians 5 and verse 3. But fornication, Paul says, and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Notice that there are three terms all related to sexuality that are used in this verse. Fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness. And that's an interesting one. We'll talk about that in just a moment. What do those terms mean? The term fornication is literally the Greek word porneia. P-O-R-N-E-I-A. It's the word from which we get our word in English, pornography. And he says that porneia is not to be even named among you as the people of God. 
The word porneia is found 25 times in your New Testament. And here are some of the things that porneia covers. And by the way, this is not just the Bible's use of the term. This is the way ancient Greeks used the term porneia. This was a, a word in their society, sexual immorality. They use this term to describe homosexuality. They use this term to describe adultery. They use this term to describe things like rape and incest. They use this term to describe practices that were outside of a married relationship. Anything outside a God-ordained marriage between a man and a woman is classified as porneia. And the Apostle Paul says, the way we think about it matters. It is not even to be named among you. But he goes on with a second word. He says uncleanness or impurity, some of your translations have. What is that? Impurity, if you want to think about it this way, porneia, you might think of it as going all the way. Impurity or uncleanness is practices and activities that take you there, that get you to that point. Things that are unclean, that are immoral, that are wrong. Those things should not be even named among you. And then the third word he uses is covetousness. And that's interesting, as I've noted. Why covetousness? I mean, you and I hear that word and immediately my mind goes to money. Covetous for money, greedy for money. But that's not the way Paul's using the term here. He's talking about being greedy for another person's body. That's the kind of covetousness that he's got in mind here. Can I just make a real practical point? Pornography, by its very nature, is nothing but covetousness in the definition that's being used here. To look at a pornographic image, to look at someone, to lust after them, that is being greedy for something which you do not own and you do not have the right to have. That's what that practice is. And, by the way, these three terms are repeated in verse 5 of this chapter. Same three terms are found in verse 5, and in verse 5, he adds this to covetousness. He says, covetousness is idolatry. It's not going too far to say, brothers and sisters and friends, that when somebody involves themselves in pornography, they have become an idolater. It is a form of idolatry. It is taking God off the throne of our hearts and saying, what I want and my desires, they come first. And God is talking to you as a Christian and he's saying, you can't let these things even be named among you. That's how we're supposed to think about it. It's not as if we kind of dabble in this and this is something, well, you know, I'll do this, but I won't do that. No, these things are not even to have a part, not even to be named among the saints. And notice the phraseology there in verse three. For the church, this is not what characterizes the people of God. An outsider should not be able to look at Christians and say, those are a bunch of idolaters. Those are a bunch of people who are involved in porneia, in sexual immorality. I know the reputation of those Christians, and that's the way they behave. Nope. As Christians, we think differently because we take our cues from an almighty and all-loving creator. Incidentally, when the Bible says that these things are not supposed to be named among us, these things are not supposed to be part of who we are, I want you to think about this. What you do with your body, it doesn't just affect you. What you do with your body affects the Lord. It may well offend Him. And what you do with your body affects the people of God. It affects the body of Christ. We are to take these things seriously seriously. 
We are to, on this point, because we're thinking properly about this, we are to set up some boundaries in our hearts and lives. We're to set up some boundaries when it comes to sexual immorality. We are to think about what's right and what's wrong and what is God-glorifying and what is not. And before, before we ever go out on a date, young people, before we ever get on the internet, on our phones, on our computers, before we ever have a conversation with someone in our lives that is not our spouse, we are to have settled in our minds what is and what is not immoral and what does and what does not please God. Families need to talk about these things in a very practical, in a very detailed way, in an age-appropriate way to be sure, but we must talk about these things because nobody ever drifted into doing the right thing when it comes to this subject. Nobody ever just said, good things will happen, I'm just going to leave it alone. Does not work that way. Take your cues from God. Secondly, God not only shows us how to think about it, he tells us how to talk about it. Look at verse 4. How to talk about it. Three more terms. The three terms are these. In verse 4, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting. Those things are not to be named among you either as the people of God. Let's talk about those. Filthiness. That which is shameful, that which is obscene. It can include the words that we use to describe our bodies. It can include the description of what we do with our bodies. It can be filthy according to God's word. And you know exactly what I'm talking about because you hear it in the movies all the time. And you probably hear it on the job all the time. Our society takes what God has given us and it turns it into something that is filthy. Let that not happen in the way you talk about these things. Foolish talking and coarse jesting. We're talking about dirty jokes, suggestive humor, double entendres. You're saying something that's suggestive and it's kind of clever and it's kind of witty, but it's lewd and it's vulgar. God says Christians don't talk that way. That's the way the darkness talks. And here's what's wrong with all that. Our humor, what we laugh about, says something about what's going on in our hearts. It says something about our character. And humor that pushes boundaries can easily degenerate into something else. And not only that, humor can make us vulnerable to degrading moral change. just does. There is a dynamic, brothers and sisters, between what we say and what's going on in our heart. Jesus said as much in Mark chapter 7, verse 21. It's what proceeds out of a man that defiles a man because it says something about what's happening in our heart. And make no mistake, God's word promises we will give an account for every idle word that we speak. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 36. But then he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, okay, don't talk about this stuff in a filthy, coarse jesting kind of way. He doesn't just stop there. Watch what he does. He then gives us a redirection. But let there be what? What does your passage say in verse 4? Let there be thanksgiving. The giving of thanks. Now I see that phrase and I think, okay, out of its context, I think of Thanksgiving dinner. I think of giving thanks to God for His goodness and His mercy and His grace. And I think of giving thanks to God for all these wonderful blessings. But in the context, he's still talking about sexual matters. How do you know, John? I know because verse 3 talks about that and verse 5 talks about that. So when he says giving of thanks, he's talking about 
God's gift of sexuality. Let there be thanksgiving in the way we talk about it, is what the Bible is saying. God has made sexuality a good and an important part of his creation. And when we talk about it, our speech ought to reflect that. He has made it a means of tenderness and intimacy between husbands and wives. It is reserved in your life for one person and one person only. It is reserved in your spouse's life for one person and one person only. It is a gift from God. And we as God's people are to give thanks to him for what he has created and what he has designed while respecting the way that he built us. And I'll say this too, anything else, anything besides God's plan is just a cheap and an empty substitute. That's the way the Bible speaks about these matters. So how we think about it matters. Are there boundaries in your life? Are there lines in your head and your heart that you have drawn? You said, I know this is wrong and I cannot participate in this. And how do you talk about these things? When people start telling jokes at work, when people start saying things at school that are suggestive, how do you talk about it? Because among the people who are children of light, we have no part of foolish talk and coarse jesting. Notice this, number three, when we take our cues from God, God also shows us not only how to talk about it, but how to see through it. There are lies and there is darkness all around us. Look at verses five and six. And what Paul does is he says, I want you to think about what's happening around you. The world puts partially clothed people out there for you to see and they put all kinds of images and ideas and concepts out there for you to think about and you're just supposed to take it at face value. This is the way to live. This is what's right. And Paul says, no, there is something deeper happening here and you need to see what's happening that's deeper. You need to understand there are three things that you need to be aware of when it comes to sexual immorality. Here are the three things. As you look through it and see the lies that it, that it, that it holds Thing number one is this. Look at verse five. You know this, he says to his brethren, no fornicator, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater. Those are the same three terms as you read in verse three, by the way. Has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God? So thing number one is they have no inheritance. If I practice these things, my destiny is already written. We're not talking about people who struggle with sexual temptation here. We're not talking about people who realize what God's will is, but there's an area of their life where they're really, really having a difficult time. But they want to please God and they want to serve God. We're not talking about people like that. We're talking about people who have given themselves over to this. People who have said, I have no intention of changing. I have no intention of doing anything different. This is the way I'm going to live my life. And God says, if that's what you choose, your destiny has been written. You have no inheritance, you have no part in the kingdom of God. You can't. Because God is separate from sin. And when God saved us, he made us holy. He made us saints, verse 3. He sanctified us and set us apart. And we can't live that kind of lifestyle and expect that God is going to be pleased. So we need to realize that when people live that life, their destiny is already written. But secondly... As you continue looking at the passage in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't take your cues from the world because their words are empty. 
That's important, brothers and sisters and friends. The world is telling us right now that if you don't get on board with the homosexual agenda, if you don't get on board with the idea that between two loving, consensual adults, sex is always okay, it's always right in those circumstances. If you don't get on board with those things, you are immoral, you are repressive, and you are not on the right side of history. And God says to you, and he says to me, nope, these are empty words. These words are not the truth. These words are not right. They sound big and they sound compelling. And sometimes as governments get behind some of this, they sound intimidating. But this is empty. It is hollow. They may echo and resonate in your culture. And you may assume and culture may assume that this is what's right and this is what's virtuous. But there is no life in those words. There is no truth in those arguments. There is nothing at all down the end of that road but brokenness and heartache, and strife, and disappointment, and bitterness, and misery. That's what lies at the end of that road. They're empty words. But these people love each other, John. These people are are committed to each other. I appreciate those things. But if you truly love somebody, you're not just interested in expressing love now. You're interested in what's best for them. And to leave somebody with a future that ends in no inheritance in the kingdom of God. I mean, what's the alternative there in verse 5? If I have no inheritance in the kingdom of God, what else must I be looking forward to? There's nothing except a horrible future. If I truly love somebody, I wouldn't lead them down that path. Notice as well a third argument, verse 6. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, verse 6, The wrath of God is upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God. Paul wants you to see through this. God wants you to see through this. The wrath of God abides upon people. You say, but they're living their lives and nothing bad ever seems to happen. I'll tell you something. There's a day of wrath that's coming for all of us. A day in which God's wrath will be poured out upon the world. The Bible promises that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 9 and 10 The wrath of God, and we're only saved from God's wrath through Jesus Christ, the Bible argues. And if we don't obey God's will, the wrath of God abides on us. But there's another element to this wrath of God thing. I want you to think about this. There is wrath that is sometimes built in by God to creation itself. Built in by God to creation itself. There are certain ways of living and there are certain ways of behaving that are so out of line with the way God created this world that they yield horrendous fruit. And sometimes those things are expressions of God's wrath as well. We need to have the wisdom to take our cues from God and see through the lies that are being fed to us every single day. What else does God tell us? Look at verses 7 through 10. He shows us how to fight against it. When we talk about sexual immorality and we talk about the the values that our culture is trying to push upon us, God gives us two main imperatives in this section. How to fight against the sexual immorality, the darkness that's all around us. Imperative number one is this. Do not partake and participate. Look at verse 7. Therefore, Christians, do not be partakers with them. Do not become, the ESV says, partners with them. 
have nothing to do with this kind of stuff. Don't do what they're doing. Don't practice what they're practicing. Don't behave the way they're behaving. But also, he says, don't even approve of it. Don't act like it's okay for other people. Don't act like this is somehow, you know, just let's live and let live. We can be loving and we can be gracious and we can be kind to people, but we are not their friend if we don't talk to people in a civil but forthright way about God's will for how we're to use our bodies. Don't participate. We are not to support or celebrate or uphold or somehow approve of those kinds of actions and those kinds of attitudes. We're just not. Do not participate with them. And then he gives you a reason for this imperative. Look at verse 8. In verse 8 he says, The reason why you're not to be partakers with them is because of who you are now as Christians. You were once darkness. You were once like them. But now as Christians you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, which is the second imperative. But let's talk about the identity thing for just a moment. God argues about sexual immorality in three ways in this passage. He argues about it in three ways. He says, you ought to think about your beliefs. What do you really believe is immoral? What do you really believe is sin? But you also ought to think about your behavior. How are you to act and how are you to speak? These things ought not to be named among you. So I ought to have some beliefs. I ought to have a different kind of behavior. And then third, he says, it's about your identity. It's about who you are. Our world is wrapped up in this idea of identity and who am I and how do I self-identify? I self-identify as a child of light. And the reason why I self-identify as a child of light is because that's how God identifies us when we are baptized, when we become Christians. He says, you are now my child. You are not a son of disobedience. Verse 7, you are a child of light. You ever go into a, you know, a, a group of a bunch of kids, you know, at a camp or something like that. And you look at some people and they kind of show a family resemblance and you, whose kids are these? Whose kids are these? I went into a, I probably told this story before, I went into a Cracker Barrel one time when Daniel was about four years old, my son Daniel. I had him, you know, holding him by the hand and this elderly man came up and he laughed and looked at him, looked at me and said, you can't deny that boy. Whose kids are these? He looks like me. He resembles me. Whose kids are you? Children of light. It's who you are. There's a difference. You're taking your cues from somebody else. And so the way you fight against it is don't participate in this stuff. Don't celebrate this stuff. Don't uphold this stuff. It is lies. It is sinful. It's going to cost your soul. And then the second strategy, how to fight against it, is there in verse 8. Walk as children of light. He's telling you, as a Christian, your walk has got to be different. And then he gives you some evidence. How do I know I'm walking as a child of light? How do I know that I resemble light? I'm, I'm, I'm the kid of light. How do I know that's the truth? He gives us some ways to test all of that. I believe we're still talking about sexual immorality here in verse 9, verse 10. I believe we still are. I don't think he's left the subject entirely. Look at what he says. The fruit of light. My translation has the fruit of the Spirit, verse 9, but the, the better translation is the fruit of light. The fruit of light is found in what is good and what is right and what is true 
And the fruit of what is light also, if you look at verse 10, finds out what is pleasing to the Lord. Number four, finds out what is pleasing to the Lord. And all of that, basically, when it comes to sexual immorality, boils down to this. If I'm going to live my life in a way that pleases my God, that shows that I am a child of light, if I'm going to live my life that way, then I should not be involved in any practice that can't be held up to the light of scrutiny. Would I be willing for people to know that this is what I'm doing with my body? Would I be willing for people to see and to have a realization that this is what's happening in my life, that this practice is taking place in my life? Would I be okay with God knowing, and he does, how I'm choosing to use my body? Things that are good and right and true and pleasing God. And let me say this, there is only one time and only one circumstance in which sexuality meets all four of those conditions. Did you know that? There's only one way in which sexuality meets all four of those conditions. It's good, it's right, it's true, and it pleases God. You know when that happens? When a man and a woman who are eligible to do so commit their lives to one another and say... I'm with you until death parts us. Then sexuality becomes good and right and true and God-honoring. God's people are to give thanks for God's blessings. But this has been horribly twisted and perverted. And if we just drift along with the current of society and we take our cues from what we hear and see around us, we will never, never find in our lives what pleases God. Before I close, I want to say this. I believe that families ought to spend some time talking about these things. I understand that children are at different stages of development, and I think there is an age-appropriate way to deal with some of these things. But I'll say this. If we don't talk about it in our families, that is not a recipe for good things. And I'll tell you this, too. Studies have shown that people who have a pornography addiction and struggle with that, do you want to know one of the ways that that is overcome? Studies have shown this. If the person who is involved in pornography has a same-sex confidant who can help keep them accountable, said another way, there needs to be somebody in your life, if this is something you struggle with, that you can talk to and that you can pray with, somebody of the same gender, who you can talk to and you can pray with and you can talk about the struggles that you're facing. That's how that kind of addiction is dealt with. We're children of light. Let's live and behave as children of light in a dark and a sinful and a degraded world. Thanks for your attention to God's word this morning. Maybe you're not a Christian and you need to obey the gospel because you want to come out of the darkness that's all around us. And you want to live and take your cues from the God who made us. If you're ready to make that commitment this morning, we come to Christ in the following way. We believe in him. We confess his name, that he is the son of God. We repent of our sins. And then we're baptized for the remission of our sins. The Bible pleads with us and God pleads with you this morning. If you need to obey the gospel, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?